Alright, uh, this is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco and we are going live both right here on KPOO San Francisco and on uh, Facebook Live. Uh, you can listen to us also online on kpoo.com. This is your host uh, Jamal Dajani. We have with us in the studio also joining us uh, from Palestine Legal, and we'll come to talk about that. This is Jackson, but first, this is the first topic we're going to be talking about. 43 senators want to make it a federal crime to boycott Israeli settlements. And uh, just some background about this. You know, Israel has occupied, as you know, Palestinian territories since 1967. Palestinians are subjected to discriminatory rule of a foreign army while their Israeli neighbors enjoy the full rights of citizenship, a situation that many world leaders, including former Israeli officials, have likened to South African apartheid. So now we have uh, 43 senators 29 Republicans and 14 Democrats want to implement a law that would make it a felony for Americans to support the international boycott against Israel, which was launched in protest of that country's decades-old occupation of Palestine. The two primary sponsors of the bill are Democrat Ben Cardin of Maryland and Republican Rob Portman of Ohio. The most shocking factor is that there is a punishment. Anyone guilty of violating its prohibitions will face a minimum civil penalty of $250,000 and a maximum criminal penalty of $1 million and 20 years in prison. Joining us to discuss this draconian bill and its impact on the First Amendment attorney Liz Jackson. Ms. Jackson is a founding staff attorney for Palestine Legal and Cooperating Council with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Her work includes representing students, professors, and activists on free speech and academic freedom issues. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Help me understand this, considering that we live in the United States and we have something called the First Amendment. It's shocking. Uh, you know, as an attorney at Palestine Legal, we have, are facing constant assaults on First Amendment freedoms in the U.S. Sometimes we call it the Palestine exception to free speech because there are uh, so many assaults on our free speech right to uh, be vocal about Palestinian freedom or critical of Israeli policy. Um, but even considering the, um, you know, sort of massive and escalating assault on free speech rights in the U.S., e even in that context, this congressional bill is uh, alarming that um, there would be such um, broad bipartisan support for such a flagrant violation of the Constitution. Now, to walk it back slightly, it, because it is such a flagrant violation of the Constitution, I want to assure the listeners that this bill, if it were to pass, cannot be enforced. And we, you know, many, there would be a broad spectrum um, of legal organizations, um, you know, and across the political spectrum, because there are those who do not support Palestinian rights, but, but do support basic American freedoms like free speech, who will oppose its enforcement um, if it were to pass. What did it, would, it, would it take to, uh, for it to pass? I was uh, reading that actually, I'm trying to find the number, 
but something like also there is a similar bill going on in in, in Congress with uh, at least 200 congressmen supporting it. There have been many um, legislative proposals, and there are also uh, bills on the state level that have already been enacted in at least 20 states and more um, at the kind of local government uh, county level. So there's, you know, the the Israel advocacy lobby in the U.S. has identified legislative strategies as their best shot at crushing the boycott um a crushing boycott, divestment, and sanctions tactics in the U.S. So that is why there are so many legislative efforts. There's 20, 20 state bills have been enacted into law, but uh, many more have been proposed and many have been defeated. Um, so what will it take? I mean, f- you know, for one thing, um, Congress is busy. Um, it will take, you know, many people prioritizing this bill. Um, it will take uh, intensive lobbying. So while the bill has the the, the current Senate bill has not advanced. Um, through committee, the fact that it already has so many supporters um, in the, you know, on, in both parties shows that APEC has already been hard at work securing the support. But um, there is an outcry. There has already been an outcry. Um, ACLU came out strongly against the bill, and already do- over you know, dozens of Democratic uh, Congress people have are reconsidering their support because it's so flagrantly um, unconstitutional. I mean, do they actually read these these bills? Some of the senators and and Congress congressmen and congresswomen do they actually read the content? Because exactly. uh, I saw an interview where a uh, representative or a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, I don't know if you saw that, uh, questioned. Uh, I think Senator Gilbrand from uh-huh. mm-hmm. New York and. She who yes, who yeah. is a co-sponsor with uh, Senator uh, right. Chuck Schumer, and she seemed to kind of retract her yes. position when she was confronted with the uh, issues around first uh, the First Amendment. Yeah, she seemed surprised, um, or at least willing to reevaluate, and I think. Um, that's one of the downfalls of the Israeli lobby strategy is that they are not honest about the anti-free speech nature of their efforts. And at times when uh, Congress people or uh, state legislatures um, discover that they're being asked to support something so fundamentally um, anti-free speech and uh, you know these anti-protest bills, they are uh, surprised. They're they're taken aback um, because you know me- there are many um, progressive legislators who identify as being. Um, supportive of dissent um, and supportive of basic American values like the right to criticize your government or the right to use civil rights boycotts um, f- you know towards social justice and they think of themselves as supportive of, of social justice boycotts and supportive of basic things like the right to criticize the government so when they discover that they're being asked to support something fundamentally anti-free speech they they uh, yeah they're surprised and they they lose some of some trust um, in the Israeli lobby, and that's a, that 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 is one way that this legislative strategy backfires. I mean, what do you? Th- what, I mean, and we'll talk later on about what's going on locally, right here in San Francisco and yeah. San Francisco State University in particular. But why do you think there is this uptick of uh, attack on on free speech, really, for any person or entity who criticizes? Uh, Israel, knowing that what they're doing is really is not going to pass, let's say, the Supreme Court, yeah. because it just challenges the 
the fundamentals of our constitution. Yeah, it's, are it's, are the Israeli Hasbara or propaganda machine panicking? I we read it as a strategy of desperation. Um, if um, exposure of you know the brutality of Israeli policies continues. Um, if you know there is active debate on U.S. campuses and churches um, in communities around the U.S. of taking a you know a good critical look at, at what is happening in Palestine and the suffering uh, in Gaza and the um, the way that you know U.S. tax dollars um, supports policies that are you know directly against our interest um, you know and against our national security interest etc. As these de- if these debates continue, um, you know U.S. public opinion is already shifting and will continue to shift, and especially among millennials, a dramatic rate sympathy for Palestinians is increasing. And so um, boycott and divestment and sanctions is a tactic, um, both to pressure Israel to comply with international law and to raise awareness and educate um, Americans about what, our, about what our tax dollars are being used for. And that is, uh, you know, that is very threatening to the status quo in Israel and Palestine, and the Israeli government knows it, and the the lobby in the U.S. knows it, and that's why such draconian measures to shut it down. And legislators are open about that. Mm-hmm. Do you see a correlation in what's happening also with the election of Donald Trump? Does the Israeli lobby feel that now they have a supportive president or an executive branch, a supportive legislative branch, and they can just go all out there with their attack? Absolutely. One, we see a couple of really important correlations. The first is the openness, um, open hostility to democracy and the, the open criminalization and banning of dissent. Israel has now banned supporters of BD, foreign supporters of BDS from entering the country. I think we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Muslim, Trump's Muslim ban is something that, um, you know, was, uh, Uh, modeled off of Israeli policy um, inside Israel. So um, the sort of the idea that you can just uh, ban dissent and keep um, people who will criticize you uh, shut out from the country, um, that's you know, that's a common strategy between both governments. The other and and just the the crackdown on dissent is also, um, you know, we're seeing this kind of fascist crackdown on dissent in both governments. The other piece is that um, the way that this anti-Israel um, boycott act, this criminalizing of boycott and divestment sanctions, it's just it's a trend. Um, this is not just the Trump administration, but this is uh, this is the, you know what is happening. What Republicans are driving through Congress and driving through state legislatures is this fundamental um, hostility to protest. It's one among many types of anti-protest laws that are proliferating around the U.S. Which can, which. Uh, uh, I should just, before we move on to the next topic, I really want you to remind our listeners because we have a lot of people who send us comments and questions uh, who are really panicking about something like this, uh, you know, especially activists. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about activists who are in support of uh, the Palestinian cause or, you know, there are activists who support many causes, mm-hmm. including, uh, you know, a free Tibet and other mm-hmm. other areas that they are worried that now they are going to be censored. It's It's very alarming, but at the same time, it is unconstitutional for the government to penalize political speech. So 
Um, we really want to, you know, strongly encourage everyone not to panic and not to take this as um, this is this is a, an unconstitutional proposal. So you cannot be censored for your political speech. You cannot be lawfully censored for your political speech. So we will be um, and there will be a backlash to this law. There will be, um, you know, if it is passed, there's already a backlash and an outcry um, and there will be more of that. So, um, you know, use this proposal to invigorate your um, invigorate your activism and invigorate your free speech defense because you are, you know, very clearly on the right side of history and very clearly on the right side of the First Amendment. You mentioned something very important that there is a backlash, and and we see a backlash coming from uh, all segments of the population, including um, Jewish Americans who yeah. support uh, the Palestinian cause, like Jewish Voice for Peace. Mm-hmm. Exactly, that's that's what I was suggesting. Is that the um, the outrage that um, a proposal like this um, generates? Um, is is actually um, useful for spreading the word about what um, is happening in Palestine and Israel and what um, lawmakers are so desperate to crush. You know, what is so dangerous about um, boycott, divestment, sanctions tactics that it needs to be criminalized. And that just putting that um, question out there is is important. What is what is so threatening about this? What did it, what what and and the answer to that is, um, you know, U.S. public opinion opinion changing and affecting the status quo. So it's in a sense it's it's a it's useful um, to generate the outrage that this bill provokes. You're listening to the voice of Liz Jackson. Ms. Jackson is a founding staff attorney for Palestine Legal and Cooperating Council with the Center for Constitutional Rights. We are going to be talking about many issues that affect your constitutional rights. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the recent uh, House, uh, uh, I mean, Senate. I think it's called the S-720, right? That's the... Uh, the bill that was proposed basically to penalize anyone who supports the uh, boycott uh, of Israeli uh, and settlement products in the United States. We are going to move on to something that's uh, very close to you, something that you've worked on and something that is very local, you know, because people, we think about this kind of like it's distant, it's uh, in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. but right here in uh, San Francisco, a lawsuit filed uh, was filed in federal court by the right-wing Zionist organization, the Lawfare Project against San Francisco State University, uh, which relies on the complete conflation of anti-Jewish animus with criticism of Israel's denial of Palestinian rights to assert that San Francisco State University violated the constitutional and civil rights of Jewish students and community members. And what we know is the true intent of the lawsuit is to ensure that advocates for Palestinian rights are punished for standing up for human rights and justice for Palestinians. I saw some write-up about this and statements coming from San Francisco State University in a way faulting the Palestinian students but at the same time kind of uh, denying the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are we with this lawsuit now? So the lawsuit was filed in June, and uh, the, um, the next stage uh, legally is for the university 
to file a motion to dismiss in uh, towards the end of August. They have 60 days from the day it's filed. So um, the defendants in the lawsuit are the university and um, uh, individual administrators and Professor uh, Dr. Rabab Abdulhadi, the uh, founding director of the Ahmed Studies Program, that's the um, Arab and Muslim uh, Ethnicities and Diasporas initiative at San Francisco State. Um, she's a Palestinian scholar who uh, studies Palestine, and she is named in the lawsuit as a defendant, um, also as a way to um, attack her and, and uh, Palestine-related scholarship. So um, the next step, so where we are in the lawsuit is for Dr. Abdulhadi, um, other individual defendants in the university to file their motion to dismiss, which basically is this lawsuit is, um, is meritless. Um, and I, um, you know, I know that Dr. Abdulhadi will vigorously defend it because the the lawsuit um, is full of false allegations and um, legally completely baseless. The university should do the same because, again, it has no merit in law or in fact. Um, it's full of untrue facts and it is like you said in the introduction the whole idea of the lawsuit is that uh, criticism of Israeli policy or advocacy for Palestinian freedom and equality and justice is inherently anti-semitic so every time somebody on campus opens their mouth with a critical uh, view of Israeli policy or um, a, you know belief in Palestinian equality that is an instance of anti-semitism and and you know each of those instances add up over decades to an institutional climate of anti-semitism that basic theory, is false, erroneous, um, itself is anti-Semitic actually, because this idea that, um, you know, Israel is a Jewish state, that the, you know, the brutality of the Israeli state is um, equal to the brutality of the Jewish Israeli state, that it's about the Israeli state being Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, viewing Jews as a monolith um, is itself uh, an anti-Semitic idea. Anyway, the basic theory behind the lawsuit is meritless in law and in fact. So um, it will fail legally. But back to your first question, where are we at with it? The day the lawsuit was filed, there were headlines all over the place, Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, all over the place with this idea, San Francisco State sued for anti-Semitism. That is the lawfare strategy. It doesn't matter in some sense what the actual facts are. What matters to them is the story that is told. And on day one when they filed it, the story was told all over the place, just reprinting the press release of the lawfare project. Um, with no investigation. And so that's the real, that is what the lawfare is. It's using the law to legally bully and to tell a fake news story about what's happening. And that drains resources, it intimidates, it scares, and it changes the public conversation away from Palestinian freedom to how some Zionist Jewish students on campus feel. Well, I mean, it is very scary especially for institutions as you know to be labeled as right. a, a anti-semitic or a safe haven for anti-semites and and uh, i feel i mean personally i don't know if you can comment comment on this but i feel the position that the administration of san francisco state university uh, had taken is uh, very 
weak, apologetic, shifting the blame on the students rather than, which my next question mm -hmm. will be to you, uh, those who are behind these uh, the lawful, uh, lawfare exactly. project or AMCHA, who is behind these organizations? Yeah, so the lawfare project, um, and if you're at home in front of the computer right now, look them up, um, and specifically they have a page on their website that says, what is lawfare? And they describe their own strategy as a way to um, abuse and misuse Western laws to achieve military objectives. They're quite open about it. It's to use the law to intimidate and scare. Um, and they um, define themselves as the legal arm of the is pro-Israel movement. Is this legal, by the way? Because when you actually I didn't I pay know. attention to that sentence that you said. I haven't read it. The military aspect of it. I mean, it yeah. sounds to me you are supporting a foreign government for military gain or. I mean, is yeah. this something that, that is this legal? In the it's US? a good question. I mean, the U.S., you know, in, in our legal system, we do have ways to um, prevent the abuse of the law. There's malicious prosecution and you can file charges against an attorney that files frivolous lawsuits. Um, so, you know, it's it's that's hard to hold them accountable for because, you know, they will, you know, they they it, it's hard to hold someone accountable for abuse of the law, basically. Um, but they're open about it, mm -hmm. and they and and even people are abusing the law all over the place. Is the other thing. It's not just the lawfare project. You know, people on every issue use the law to bully and intimidate. Um, you know, the the director of the lawfare project uh, has said openly um, that that the the goal of their work is to inflict quote massive punishments as a deterrent effect uh, to target people who are um, protesting Israeli policies on campuses. Um, it's also an Islamophobic organization that has openly said, um, you know, she, the same director, um, why do we even call them Palestinians? Palestinian, why do we use the word Palestinians? Palestinians don't exist. Um, she has said that Islamophobia is a created concept. I think she's, uh, I'm not positive, but I believe she said that it was, uh, this word was coined by the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so she denies that there's anti-Muslim discrimination. Um, it's a pretty nasty, uh, really right-wing organization. Who's funding and, them? Oh, yes. Great Follow question. Follow the money. So I encourage all the listeners to look up um, The Business of Backlash, which is a report um, published by the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network that goes into some of the, um, the funding streams. But essentially, they're funded by right-wing Islamophobes. They're part of the Islamophobia, Islamophobia Network. Uh, I need to go back and look to see if the Sheldon Adelson uh, money is going to the hmm. Lawfare Project. Um, I'm, I'm not prepared to answer that ex uh, with specific facts, but I, but yes, it's funded by the general network of uh, of the, the Islamophobia funded network. Well, the, there was also uh, previously an attack also by another uh, shady organization called Amcha. Right. And same thing. It wasn't. I, it did. It didn't uh, uh, materialize into a lawsuit, but uh, total hack job of defamation. And you said something very important uh, early on. Is uh, you, you talked about really uh, about yellow journalism? Yeah. Uh, seeing you know from the Washington Post to the New York Times to other newspapers who pretty much take. 
what they publish for granted and copy and paste it and weave it through their stories without any investigation, without talking to to the students, without talking to to anyone. It would have taken them two clicks to get to who is the Lawfare Project. It's right on their website. And no one did any background reporting on what the intent behind the lawsuit would be, what the explicit intent of the Lawfare Project is. And that would have given a lot of important context. But exactly. No one did it. So earlier you had the same thing. We had the same thing, uh, you know, by AMCHA. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, all these organizations, they seem to be connected somewhere. You know, you've mentioned right. Sheldon Adelson. If it's not Sheldon Adelson, it's whatever, Campus Watch or that right. group. But someone, some organization is funding them because obviously they have uh, – Time on their hand, people to write, publish. Mm -hmm. They have lawyers to file Mm -hmm. a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with, uh, for example, San Francisco State University, which I'll come to, to, I'll ask you this question because I don't know what San Francisco State University is really doing because you said what you're doing and how this will be dismissed. But how are they handling this legally and are you coordinating with their legal team? So um, we don't um, know exactly what um, how San Francisco State will defend the lawsuit. They have, you know, their own um, general counsel's office. It's the uh, California State University general counsel's office. Um, we do know that the day after the lawsuit was filed in response to the media pressure, President Wong made um, an absolutely shocking statement um, where he said that essentially, this is not a direct quote, but essentially um, conceded that there's this ugly problem of anti-Semitism on our campus, but it's not our fault. That was what he signaled the university's defense would be. And when he said ugly um, ugly incidents of anti-Semitism, what he was referring to was the protest in 2016 of uh, the mayor of occupied Jerusalem near Barkat, uh, that and protests, there were um, very vocal protests of the mayor's speech on campus at that time. And uh, the protesters were widely accused in the fake news media of uh, being violent and threatening towards an anti-Semitic, towards Jewish students. The university invested, investigated those accusations uh, twice, and they retained an independent uh, counsel, uh, an ind- a civil rights expert, to do an independent investigation. And the results of those investigations were crystal clear. It was a false accusation that the protesters were violent and anti-Semitic. The, in fact, the protesters, yes, they were, they were loud, um, and they were not targeting Jewish students, but focused on the mayor uh, for his political uh, beliefs and for his policies and his role as uh, an, a public official. So the facts are really, at this point, no longer in dispute. It is clear that this was not an ugly instance of anti-Semitism. It was an instance of um, intense political tension and protest on campus. And this is a public university. This is what our public universities are for. So when Wang made the statement in response to the lawsuit, just completely uh, contrary to the basic facts, contrary to the university's own investigation, um, he signaled that he, kind of like yellow journalists, just he's just going to throw out the facts and uh, concede to the political pressure, uh, this kind of basic story, which is untrue. 
So um, I'm not. I I think the university, especially um, once it takes a closer and honest and kind of a breath outside of the pressure of the media, will uh, change its tune and actually um, defend the truth. Um, but the university needs pressure to do that because it is certainly receiving plenty of political pressure from the Israel lobby to uh, concede or settle the lawsuit. And f- and so we don't know how the university will defend it, is the and short answer. F- from politicians in Sacramento and uh, right. probably Washington, D.C., from what I heard, but to give it a little bit of more context for our listeners who are not familiar with what happened when Nir Barakat uh, came to San Francisco State University and why the students were protesting, but uh, and this is something you can learn about this, just uh, Google it. Nir Barakat was basically slinging a uh, a gun or a machine gun in the streets of Jerusalem and encouraging settlers to do the same, to basically defend themselves against Palestinians. And he is supposed to be the mayor of, uh, between quotes, a united Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so he was separating between the Jewish population and the Palestinian population. And you're right. I mean, uh, I was once a college uh, student, and this is something that college students do all the time. Uh, I mean, they've protested right here in Stanford, Condoleezza Rice. They've protested uh, other politicians Mm -hmm. from the United States. I mean, if we had a politician, this is my own feeling, who was from the U.S., whether uh, he or she was the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense, and the students uh, protested him or her, we wouldn't have had these issues. Exactly. I mean, I think an important, uh, an apt analogy would be um, if we had, Think of uh, famous uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Arizona, who Mm -hmm. is an elected official who openly advocates and implements uh, openly racist policies uh, towards immigrants um, and openly racist policing in Arizona. So or imagine if the mayor of San Francisco um, were openly promoting and implementing racial quotas and saying we need to reduce the population, you know, the Latino population in San Francisco to no more than 10 percent. Um, that public official would face, you know, if speaking at San Francisco State, um, extreme protest. Mm -hmm. There would be people um, screaming because this is so deeply um, threatening um, and racist. And that is what is to be expected when you have a public official who uh, is busy implementing such openly racist policies. Uh, and all the other pieces, and this came out when this incident was investigated by the independent um, investigator, is that this is also the um, common practice at San Francisco State. There are a lot of vocal protests of speakers. It's part of um, campus politics, and it's it's actually um, yeah part of the culture on campus. And um, in no other case were vocal protests uh, investigated or, or punished. So it's um, the university then can't all of a sudden. Um, restrict vocal protests on a specific issue just because there's there's uh, you know, it, it can't be special treatment for this issue. If that's the culture of protest mm-hmm. at the school, they need to enforce the rules evenly for everyone, no matter what the issue is. And I should add that uh, the protest was uh, peaceful. No one was hurt. No one was injured. 
and or even close to being injured. The police uh, did not um, identify a credible political uh, physical threat. There was no there was no threat. It, it wasn't there was no violent threat or that all the accusations of and these are in the lawsuit as well. And they're blatantly false. There was no physical threats. There was no encroaching. And um, one of the things the lawsuit says, which I, we I think all is is really coded uh, anti-Muslim language, is that the um, protesters were adjusting their headscarves in a uh, threatening manner. How how do you do that? I I I'd like to know. How As do you if they're, I, I don't know. I, we might need a demonstration. I mean, to me, that's a code of, um, you know, threatening, scary Muslims are in the room and they're dangerous I, to you. I mean, what does that mean? I, I think I, it's an Islamophobic yeah, comment. Exactly. To, to say something like this. And uh, I should also. It's untrue. Add, also, yeah, no one was adjusting any. Uh, yeah. Well, the, also the fact uh, of the matter, and we are going to have, and we've had before uh, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi yeah. uh, to talk uh, about this topic, because also this uh, mushroomed into threats of violence, whether yeah. on the Internet or by email or what have you, uh, targeting Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi personally and targeting students. Yeah. I mean, I've uh, spoken to students who were threatened, uh, uh, Muslim students who were threatened to uh, to be raped. Yeah. Uh, and and none of that is being reported by the media. Yeah. The protesters of the uh, Mayor of Jerusalem event were subjected to uh, very scary, severe cyber bullying. They were um, threatened with rape, with death. Uh, they were profiled on a blacklisting website called Canary Mission, which started uh, contacting their employers, um, calling them uh, anti-Semitic terrorists, and um, harassing them on Twitter and inciting other users to harass them. Um, and threaten them, again, rape and death threats. Uh, the um, This was followed um, by a postering campaign by the David Horowitz Freedom Center on campus, calling them terrorists and anti-Semites and featuring um, a caricature picture of Dr. Rabab Abdulhadi, uh, again, calling them all anti-Semites and terrorists. And uh, this has severe consequences for students who are already trying to um, learn and study in a repressive environment. So um, these are students who already have trauma, um, already fear for their physical safety, um, and students who are already um, trying to protect themselves from surveillance by, you know, go uh, government and, and private institutions that are um, invading their privacy and following them. So um, all of this is, um, you know, in, in legal language, we call this a severe disruption to their education. Um, and, you know, we think that the university bears significant responsibility for that because it's the university's job to publicly clarify the facts. It is incorrect. It is fake news. It is untrue that mm -hmm. these protesters are violent or motivated by animus towards Jewish students. There's no facts that support that. And the university knows this, and the university is um, not saying so, and the university needs to say so. You're right, and we are going to maintain the pressure on the university, both right here in San Francisco and as a community, and as journalists uh, who 
basically want to find out the truth yeah. behind what's uh, going on. You are listening to the voice of attorney Liz Jackson. She is a founding staff attorney for Palestine Legal and a cooperating counsel with the Center of Constitutional Rights. Uh, and we're going to stay on the same topic. We've been talking to you about all these topics that really center around uh, freedom of speech, the First Amendment, and, and, and so forth. And, and again, on this whole subject of the BDS and the attack, you know, mm-hmm that's happening from all different angles. And this is something very recent, um, happened right in Washington, D.C. Five members of an interfaith delegation were prevented from boarding their flight to Israel because of their public criticism of the Israeli government's policies towards Palestinians. The group of Jewish Muslim and Christian leaders were apparently singled out for their public support for Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which is the BDS movement on the state of Israel. So here, the story. This is how the story goes. Upon arrival, uh, and and it is unprecedented. Uh, I have to say because we know mm-hmm. that Israel deports people and holds them right mm-hmm. at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. But I haven't heard of people going. And this is what happened to these uh, uh, activists upon arrival at the Lufthansa check-in counter at the Dulles International Airport. An airline employee informed informed the group that the Israeli government had told the airline not to let them board. The five uh, people prohibited from flying are Rabbi Alyssa Wise, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, Deputy Director uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Alana Krivo Kaufman from Brooklyn, New York, and Noah Habib from Virginia, both also of JVP, Rick Offer Chase of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, uh, from Rockland County, New York, mm-hmm. and Shaquille Sayed, mm-hmm. a national board member of the American Muslims for Palestine uh, from Los Angeles. I don't think, I don't know if you know of any other cases. I have never heard of a case where the airline uh, counter makes that decision unless uh, they have an order right here in the U.S. from Homeland Security that you are on the blacklist. I mean, this happens to people mm-hmm. uh, prevented, but not from a foreign country giving orders uh, abroad to, uh, I guess, employees in a in a an American airport. Right. As far as we know, this is unprecedented. I think it's a good point that you said this. You know, this happens and has been happening for years to um, Palestinians and others who uh, certain border agents view as a threat. I mean, people all the time have are, are banned, detained, um, sent back, profiled, racially profiled, and this has been documented by even the U.S. State Department. Um, but what is 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 unprecedented is um, that the Israeli government is now explicit as a policy they will ban people for their political views. So it is an open declaration of uh, an open anti-democratic declaration. It is an explicit policy and they have developed a blacklist that they are um, now being open about um, of blacklisted individuals who cannot enter the country because of their views critical of Israeli state policies. I mean, this is, is, it, is it legal? I don't know if it's on, this might be international law or something like this to actually implement the policy from another country. 
and from a carrier that is not uh, mm-hmm. holding the Israeli flag. You know, I mean, in this case, it's Lufthansa. Right. Next time it could be United Airlines that they are actually giving orders and saying, don't let these people board. I mean, what is the obligation if I purchase a ticket? Mm-hmm. Uh, from United, for example, mm-hmm. and and by the way, uh, I, I I I read more uh, or uh, read about the uh, uh, the, the uh, activist statements. They had their boarding passes. They right. printed them, so they they paid, they purchased, check-in. they paid, they were checked in. And I think then, it was a pawn check-in, baggage check. Yeah, one, yeah, and then they told them uh-huh. they cannot go. That you have a foreign government, yeah. in this case, ordering on American soil, an employee to implement their policies. You know, Jamal, I don't know the answer to the legal question. I think it needs to be asked and investigated. Um, Can this be implemented on U.S. soil? And what are the implications for, I mean, what are the First Amendment implications if this is implemented on U.S. soil? Um, You know, if Israel is going to ban people based on political speech, they can do that, you know, on Israeli soil. Um, can that be implemented here? I mean, I, I don't know. I think this all is being um, interrogated now. I don't I don't know the answer to the legal question. But I do know that based on, um, you know, again, ba- basic American freedoms, um, we don't do political blacklists. In a, oh, we shouldn't. Um, we have, you know, many times in the past, this is McCarthyist, but it mm-hmm. is, um, it is a fundamental violation of basic American freedoms to operate a blacklist based on political views. Um, and what and does that this is what say, is. Mm. What does this say uh, about Israel? Because I also read an article by I think the rabbi, Rabbi Weiss, mm-hmm. and she wrote as a right. as a Jew how she felt as a second class citizen and how she felt isolated and rejected. Right. And as a Jew with deep uh, connections to Israel and Israeli society, um, I think Rabbi um, Weiss has family and grew up going to Israel. Um, It's actually part of her, um, you know, Jewish experience and she is banned. I think what it says about Israel is that the society um, or the government cannot uh, survive um, based on, you know, this kind of can, cannot survive by force um, alone. It uh, is, uh, you know, the, the, the government itself is, is so deeply threatened by political dissent, it cannot permit political dissent, meaning it cannot survive as a democracy. Mm-hmm. And they're very scared of this. I think yeah, I think they are panicking and they are right. experimenting with with uh, right. with different measures. How far can they go? How far exactly? I feel a little bit encouraged mm. with all of this. I know it's it sounds very pessimistic, uh. but I actually feel encouraged sometimes when I mm. see uh, Jewish Americans, uh, members of the JVP and other organizations. Taking such um, such a stance and and a risk um, that maybe I mean you see a glimmer of hope in convincing those who are a little bit too yeah. to the center or to the right yeah. to see the oppression to see uh, you know that this policy of uh, exclusion and apartheid and occupation is only going to hurt not only Palestinians, but also um, 
Israelis and, yes. and even Jews across the globe. Yes. I mean, and I can speak for a minute as a Jewish American myself. It is more and more Jews in the U.S. are um, understand that our Jewish values uh, you know, tell us to stand up for the oppressed and that um, for the safety of Jews in the U.S. and globally, we cannot allow the um, status quo of occupation, dispossession, and, and violence to continue. That um, we stand against that through boycott, divestment, and sanctions, through visiting Israel and, and Palestine and learning, um, through protesting. You know, our, our own the way our own U.S. tax dollars are used. Um, we do all these things out of you know based on our, our Jewish values and our vision, and out of to, to protect ourselves as Jews in the diaspora. Um, that this this situation cannot continue, and that you know one way to say it is, I'm not free until everyone is free. More and more Jews, and especially young Jews, see it that way, um, and we are deeply, deeply troubled um, that uh, the Israeli brutality goes on in our name, and especially troubled that when we protest that, um, that is knee-jerk labeled as anti-Semitic because it's it's the opposite. And 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 this is also happening. I should add to uh, also activists in in Israel uh, recently. Uh, Miss Gold, uh, she also was harassed. In uh, mm-hmm. she's uh, I think also a member of JVP. Ariel and Ariel. Yeah, and Code Pink. Mm-hmm. And Code Code Pink, and she recently was basically because she's there, and she was harassed in Hebron mm. for for protesting. And mm-hmm. you're seeing more and more of these things uh, going on. But uh, again, I think the most important issue at hand is uh, also fighting for uh, our freedom, freedom of speech, uh, protecting the First Amendment, and having people like you and other organizations. uh, I really appreciate having you here. I know we'll have you Mm -hmm. here in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're coming to an end uh, Mm -hmm. to to another episode of Arab Talk. You've been listening to the voice of Liz Jackson from Palestine Legal. You can go to their website, uh, also to their Twitter, to learn more about the projects and the cases they've been working on. And uh, we will talk to you next week right here, same place, same address on KPOO 89.5 FM, San Francisco. Mm-hmm.